I'm Zach Carlson, and you are listening to the World is Wrong podcast with Andras Jones and Brian Connolly, usually. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about <laughs> the island of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm one of your hosts, and my name is Brian Connolly. And yes, we are here to talk about The Island of Dr. Moreau from 1994. Six. Six, sorry. From 1996. And, uh, yeah, this is a much maligned film. (laughs) It has a sordid production history. One that actually uh, deserved its own documentary. The film Lost Soul, which we'll be discussing. As well as the film The Island of Dr. Moreau. Starring Marlon Brando, Val Kilmer, and David Thewlis. And directed by John Frankenheimer after it was uh, it was supposed to be directed by Richard Stanley. And uh, we'll get into more of the details of that as we continue the show. But Brian, do you want to say anything else about this before we play the clip? Uh, no, just uh, this is one that I've been thinking of for a while. Uh, this is a movie that I've always liked and have always heard from everybody how terrible it is. <laughs> so I feel it's fitting that we finally covered it. I can't believe it took us the third season to get to it. But you know what? Like a fine wine. I think it was good just to let it sit around and gestate, you know. I, the, the fine wine isn't the analogy I would use. I would use the analogy of it's it takes a long it's a long journey to get to Island of Dr. Moreau. It takes it a took long us two journey. seasons of journeying through the wilderness of other films <laughs> to reach the Island of Dr. Moreau. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now let's play a clip from that film and then we'll come back and talk about it. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Release him. Release him. Give him the gun. What? Give him the gun. He's very frightened. Give it to him. No! No, no, no. No! No! He won't hurt him. Mr. Douglas, I beg you, please do not confuse them. Move back! Move back! Don't add more pain to their already diminished lives. Why have you done this? 
Don't you feel the heat as I do? I, I, I can't tolerate the sun and what it's doing to me and what it's doing to all of us, of all life on earth. We must return to the compound. Keep the weapon if it comforts you. The Island of Dr. Moreau, 1996, directed by John Frankenheimer. Uh, story is, uh, if you're familiar, I mean, this movie's been made a few times based on the book by H.G. Wells, originally made into a, a movie called The Island of Lost Souls, where the great Charles Lawton played Dr. Moreau. There's a great version from the 70s with Burt Lancaster as Dr. Moreau. And now here we are in the 90s uh, with more state-of-the-art makeup from Phil Tippett and creatures, uh, you know, that they've never been able to make. Uh, but for those unfamiliar with the book and plot, I'll give you the, the little the gist of it. Douglas, played by David Thewlis, is shipwrecked and after having a horrible, brutal fight with the few remaining survivors of his ship, he washes up and gets saved by Montgomery, played by Val Kilmer, who is on his way to bring some bunny rabbits to a mysterious island in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you find out that this island is run by Dr. Moreau, played by Marlon Brando. And what is Dr. Moreau up to? Well, he is into playing God in a big way, more so than doctors normally are. And he's creating uh, kind of animal-human hybrids and new types of animals. And he refers to them as his children, and they refer to him as father. And of course, as to be expected in movies where people play God, doesn't work out so well for anybody. <laughs> and so there's there's the plot. There's basically the plot of the island of Dr. Moreau. We'll get more into it as we talk about it for sure. And how is the world wrong? Count the this ways is... for us. How is the world wrong what? about this film? Uh, this, it's just uh, immediately... Before it even came out, it was kind of looked at as a, a, a terrible movie, as a bomb, much in the way that, like, other movies that had kind of a big, uh, uh, you know, public knowledge of their crazy production, much, much like what happened with Apocalypse Now or Titanic or Ishtar, where before the movie comes out, people are writing it off thinking this is going to be terrible because of just the drama behind the scenes. Unlike... Apocalypse Now, and uh, it, it, this movie was not liked when it came out. It uh, critics did not like it. Uh, the it moved. It did. It did well at, at the box office. It actually wasn't terrible. It didn't do horrible, but I don't think it was the huge hit that they hoped. Especially since they put a lot of money into it, uh, and it still is kind of considered one of the biggest, you know, Hollywood failures or just like a tear like it is often considered in sentences about what are the worst hollywood movies what are the most terrible movies that you know definitely marlon brando you know becoming even more of a joke after this uh, this movie's been made fun of on south park and in austin powers and it's definitely like a movie that people look at with ridicule they're all wrong this movie is so fascinating sure it has its problems as any movie with that kind of insane production would have. But I feel what, what has come out of that mess is something that is just, uh, 
there's just something about this movie that I just can't take my eyes off of. And I've always felt that. And there's a there's a documentary yeah. about this film <laughs> called Lost Soul. Do you want to talk a little yeah. bit about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. And then like and like like there's like I highly recommend people watch it. And I think you could totally even watch it before watching this movie because it doesn't really ruin much of anything. <laughs> But it, I think it puts a lot of stuff in context. Uh, and like, we don't need to go through the blow by blow of the movie because it does a very good job of, of doing that. But basically what happened was Richard Stanley, hot off of making um, a few kind of lower budgeted, kind of crazy art house horror films, went to Hollywood as filmmakers often do. And this was sort of the movie he wanted to kind of jump into Hollywood with. And, because he had a particular uh, connection with it. Is the the story his, <laughs> was that his great his grandfather or his father was it his grandfather or his father? So what? So it's an interesting weird thing where his uh, great great grandfather was supposedly who the character uh, that that Joseph Conrad based on for Heart of Darkness the the, 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 the main Kurt's character, character goes up the river Kurt's character was based on his great great grandfather who was an explorer who went into the jungles and stuff and the the and basically H G Wells and Con and Conrad were friends and when Heart of Darkness came out H G Wells was like you just ripped off Island of Doctor Moreau you took the monsters out but you basically have the same damn story and there was a falling out <laughs> and that's when <laughs> when Joseph Conrad said no I didn't based it upon your on you i based it upon this obscure historical figure he's the great grandfather of richard stanley so richard stanley had a deep like from childhood connection to in a weird this way yeah story <laughs> and uh so he went to make the movie he was gonna make it with new line correct yeah and uh basically from there it all <laughs> fell apart uh well it, but it's what's just, interesting it's, can it, i just say what's interesting yeah. about the way it fell apart was it it sort of succeeded too much. Like they, when Marlon Brando came on, when they got Marlon Brando, it became a much bigger film than what Richard Stanley had initially wanted to make. He wanted to make a little eight to $10 million movie. But then when you start when then Marlon Brando, but since Marlon Brando was like so big that you had to have him and you had to pay him, but he wasn't big box office. So then you had to get a big star, which was Val Kilmer. And then these two guys, be, even if their egos hadn't gotten out of hand in terms of whatever pissing contest they were doing, it the film was the victim of its production success. <laughs> and it, it was worth noting that it was originally going to have his script directed by Roman Polanski, which would have been... A very different sort of movie. I wonder what that would have been. Yeah. Like, uh, I, uh, there's still time. He could still make it. <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah, I just felt like when you watch the movie, it feels like they're already against Stanley even. Like, why did they agree to have him direct it? Because it seems like they didn't really want him to do it. He is definitely an incredibly eccentric person. Uh, and I think that they... Uh, would have rather had someone like Frankenheimer from the start, someone who's more Hollywood, someone who's more of like kind of that kind of general Patton on the yeah, set. Yeah, but, you, but when, you're, when you're watching the video of them, the videos of them talking, Richard Stanley is clearly an interesting person and Edward <laughs> Pressman and Bob Shea are not. <laughs> yeah, it's Richard Stanley's into like witchcraft and just like very, uh, like this, this into just like really spiritual, like, just out there ideas that are just that make him just 
like the right person that you want to see direct a Hollywood movie because that's a unique point of view that you don't get. Like this isn't just some kid who grew up in Hollywood. This is like an actual artist who has a perspective. And as the movie got bigger and bigger, and I think he did his best to try to make it work. But when you watch the documentary, it seems like he just couldn't handle how big it was getting. And also he wasn't getting the backing or help well, from yeah, his I'm, producers. If you, the producers turned on him. I've you know? been uh, on a set where... I felt like that was happening to me. I've been in situations, not necessarily a set, but I've been in, well, even, yeah, I've been on one set where I felt that it was happening to me. When you're on a set and you have a position on that set of some, like, I don't know, authority, authority is the wrong word. You're the star of the movie or you're the director of the movie. You're like, everything is sort of, you're crucial to the production, but it's clear that the people on the production wish that you weren't there. <laughs> and some people the- can like you know some people can dance with that and be cool with it but if you're a sensitive person yeah it just it starts it, to it breaks your mind apart yeah <laughs> and, that, and that's what happened he basically kind of got super depressed and lost his mind and just stopped communicating with the crew and just was kind of shutting down as i've seen people do on non-movie sets if you're like in charge of some project of any sort and everyone's just sort of against you or just not working or it's getting kind of overwhelming. Some people can't handle that. Um, And it wasn't that everyone was against him. Like there's a lot of the crew that talk about how they really enjoyed Richard Stanley. Feruza Balk, for sure, who's in this movie, the main actress, very behind Richard Stanley and even threatened to quit, was like one of the only actors who threatened to quit when he was fired uh, from the movie. And, uh, yeah, it just felt like everybody kind of smelled Richard Stanley's, uh, not weakness, but just that he wasn't the type of person to maybe handle this. And everyone kind of started to bully him, even uh, just the stories of like just some of the actors like Val Kilmer just sort of like questioning every moment of the script. And maybe there was some validity to some of that, but it just seemed like by that point, poor Richard Stanley was just <laughs> over his head and no one was there to help him that was like behind the movie. And so he just kind of left he was fired um but (laughs) he was fired but he only went he didn't go back to la or back to england like they wanted him to they wanted him to go as far away but instead he got even closer he went off into the woods and just was staying in this in like somewhere in the jungles (laughs) and some some people from the crew who were out scouting for locations found him and we're like, hey, you're here. And he's like, and they're like, you should come to come back to the set, you know, put on. A, and so he puts on this one of the monster masks. And he so he ended up being on the set for a lot of the Frankenheimer shoot playing <laughs> yeah. a monster. And everyone thought it was weird because he never took off his mask. <laughs> I just, I just fucking love it. it's just, that is so amazing. That yes. It's like the idea that like he was literally like 10 feet away from Frankenheimer and the producers and. Val Kilmer and Brando, and they had no idea. He was just like, like just checking out what was going on. <laughs> so awesome. <laughs> and so, what's funny though uh, is that so the movie continues with Frankenheimer, but it continues to be out of hand. It has it clearly had nothing to do with Richard Stanley because it continues to be this off the rails production that goes over schedule, over budget. Uh, 
Brando and Kilmer having like this ego clash on the set where there are like, they're refusing to leave their trailers to the other one, like fucking. Fucking with Frankenheimer, fucking with the movie, Brando coming up with new ideas every day, totally changing the script. Uh, there's a moment in the documentary where Feruza Balk talks to Brando about like, hey, let's go over our characters. And Brando's like, why? This movie's insane. Like, who cares? I'm not going to read the script. Like, it's just, it's just, this is just insanity. Just go with it. Just go with the insanity. And when you watch the movie... He definitely goes with the insanity, which is why it's uh, one of the many reasons why it's so special, because this is the kind of actor you want to see go with the insanity. Like Marlon Brando is your guy. And the ideas he came up with, uh, which we will talk about, are so much better, I think, than if he, if he didn't come up with them. And uh, yeah, and, and it just seemed like no one got along and everything was a total mess. Yet, even after all of that, we have a movie that exists. They finished it. Can I, can <laughs> and I, here we are. <laughs> can I, there, there's one other thing that I thought was interesting about the documentary, which is that originally Rob Morrow yeah. was from uh, Northern Exposure was supposed to play the David Thewlis character. But when things broke down and they were rewriting the script and they were rehiring a director, he freaked out and was like get me out of here get me out of here <laughs> probably smart probably a smart move for him actually um but what i thought was so strange was that the documentary never mentions david thewlis not at once all that's it, it, not yeah really Which is fucking weird, weird. It's, well it's weird because they go into like all the other stuff like oh it was originally going to be james woods and it was this so they're talking to all these people like do you think thewlis was like Leave my name out of it or I will sue you. But what could he sue them for? Because it's like he was in the movie. No, no. They. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's like it's a deliberate like or did they not know who David Thewlis was? It's just like it's very odd. I agree. Like, I thought that too the whole time being like, are they going to interview Thewlis? Oh, maybe not. Wait, are they not going to even mention him? That's <laughs> very weird. And it is very weird. Like you're talking to all the animals. Yeah. Like people you've never heard of and some you have. But like. We are not going to talk about who is sort of the lead character of the movie. Not once. Like, not like, once. <laughs> not once. That is like Lost Soul, great movie, but that is definitely its biggest fault of like, it's a weird, like it's, it feels intentional. It doesn't make like, it makes you wonder, first of all, so if Brando and Val Kilmer were as bad as they were, but they were talking about him, was David Thewlis just worse? And like he was so terrible that he really he pissed people off so much they didn't want to mention him. Or is it that they made like did they make this? No, they already by by the time they made that documentary, they knew that David Thewlis was had gone like that he had gone on to more and more greater things. But he was famous by the time this came out for certain people who saw like naked and well, like, yeah, that's... Like, he was like he wasn't like a nobody, you know. And now he's in Harry Potter movies and shit. So it's like, it's very weird. Uh, having, I mean, it's still a great movie. It's directed by David Gregory, who uh, is the guy who runs Severin Films, uh, who has, you know, been a friend to both of us in terms of, you know, putting, they put out the Attic Expeditions and put you on the cover. So, uh, and I've done some stuff for them. Returned so like, it's my a great... name to the cover as it should have been. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> so the, the, this is a great movie, but... 
It is weird that David Thewlis is not mentioned in it at all. It is very, very weird. Um, yeah. But <laughs> uh, just before we go into the, uh, you know, the movie itself, there is <laughs> uh, some really, really funny Frankenheimer quotes about working with Val Kilmer. <laughs> have you read? <laughs> have you read these? Lay <laughs> them uh, on us. Because the... Because the big, the big thing that also like that everyone kind of knew from like they might have not known about all the Richard Stanley stuff necessarily, but like the public at large definitely heard a lot about Marlon Brando being very difficult, and I feel this was sort of like the biggest of or, or the like the peak of Val Kilmer being quote unquote difficult. Uh, like that was sort of like the big story out of it. And uh, the two great quotes, one is from Frank and Amber saying, if I made a movie called The Life of Val Kilmer, I would not cast Val Kilmer. <laughs> and then the other one is, there are two things I will never do in my life. I will never climb Mount Everest and I will never work with Val Kilmer again. There isn't enough money in the world. But... It didn't seem like Frankenheimer was easy either, according to the documentary. It seemed like he was kind of a jerk, too, that everybody was just sort of... It felt very apocalypse now in terms of, like, everyone's just kind of losing their mind in the jungle and, you know, for a half a year or plus, you know? So, I don't know. I don't know if I hate any of these people other than maybe the producers who should have stepped in and handled it and figured it out. (laughs) Yeah, I just yeah, it's it's I don't hate any of these people and I just see like well, I was telling you that the the watching the documentary was depressing for me because clearly Richard Stanley is a guy with vision, sort of an interest he's just he's an interesting person and he's the kind of person who should like he he was punished for the crimes of the industry, not for himself, because the industry doesn't know how to support an artist like that. And who knows? Maybe he shouldn't have done. Maybe they should have, you know, I guess the story is that Stanley had a meeting with Brando and he convinced Brando that he he should be the guy. Which is kind of, I guess, isn't that the story with Godfather to <laughs> the Godfather the or whatever? Yeah, that Brando yeah. got that Coppola got Brando to yeah back be on him. his side. Yeah, um, and he was the one who helped kind of make Al Pacino be definitely in the movie. And like you, like if like Brando, even it's crazy that even in the mid '90s, Brando still has that power. You know. That he is like such like looked at in this way of like, well, if he says, then I guess that's what we got to do, you know, like, which is interesting just to have to always have that, you know, in your career, even when you're not making movies that are hits and you're older and you don't look quite the same and that you still have everybody kind of give you this sort of like treating you like the animal street Dr. Moreau, basically of like, oh, what's he saying? Oh, it's Brando. Okay, this is what we're doing. Uh, yeah, he's well, yeah. he lives in that place. <laughs> of cultural icon that is you know like elvis you know if marilyn monroe would live yeah yeah uh you know the beatles yeah if someone who is just like they their authority is so overwhelming yeah um, so yeah so yeah let's <laughs> let's let's dig into this let's dig into this film um I wish. Oh, let's say one other thing about uh, Richard Stanley. He did come back and made the film Color in Space with Nicolas Cage. Did you see that? 
Color Out of Space. Sorry, Color Out of Space. Yeah, that movie's great. I, uh, <laughs> I think it's great, too. I think, I think it's really, really good. And... Uh, and and supposedly he's trying to do Dr. Moreau again because it's on his IMDb as in production or in consideration or whatever. So maybe uh, it won't be this sad story. Maybe it'll be because like this movie does feel like it's like it's all it's those sad Hollywood stories, which people like to make documentaries about about the movie that could have been like there's the uh, yeah. Orson Welles one about um What's what's the Orson Welles one about? I forget. Some movie tried to make that didn't work. There's uh, the Terry oh, it's Gilliam. It's all true. It's all true. Yeah. There's a Terry Gilliam uh, Lost in La Mancha, which he did yeah. actually get to make. Uh, but then Yodorowsky's Dune. Yep. So like, there's these famous sort of these movies that could have been. Uh, and man, the artwork that they had for it looks so cool. And I just really hope that maybe he does get to make his Island of Dr. Moreau. It's been. No one's made a version of it since 1996, so I think there's maybe a terrible Full Moon Entertainment sort of bastardization of it from like 15 years ago. But like, there's still room for like a lower budgeted, you know, Stanley version. Um, One thing, just because if people are listening to this and saying, didn't I hear something weird about that guy? Uh, after Color Out of Space, there was an accusation against him from a former partner and collaborator that they that there had been an abusive relationship. But then he uh, he basically sued that woman and took her to court. Like he he was the court found that that was a, an unjustified accusation. Whether or not hmm. it is, you make your own mind up. But if you only have the one side which is just that there was just an accusation. Uh, you might think, why are you talking about this terrible person in such a way? But again, considering the way that this guy has been treated by Hollywood and by, you know, just I'm I'm inclined to think that there are dynamics and it, yeah, not entirely against, you know, if you're going to be doing witchcraft to try and get your movies made, you're messing with and he talks about that like that he on the day he met with brando he had some warlock in the uk doing rituals to try and make the film happen and so maybe if you play with those kind of games you attract a more complicated life certainly yeah yeah (laughs) Uh, but at the same time that doesn't that doesn't make you a monster and um and so i i I went down the rabbit hole on this a little bit, and my opinion is that the guy should get to make another movie. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he dresses like the Undertaker from WWF wrestling. He's <sighs> big hat, these big coats. I've seen him in person a few times. He comes to Austin, or has used to come to Austin often, and he would hang out at the Alamo Draft House, and he just had this like mysterious sort of like. There's there's definitely like an, an odd vibe coming off of him for sure. Um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so let's... You could say the same thing about Miranda July and I fucking love her. Uh, true. Yeah. <laughs> her movies are great. Uh, uh, so I guess I want to ask you, like, did you watch this when it come out, came out? Cause like, you're clearly a big Kilmer fan, huge Brando fan as most people should be. Like, did you see this in the theater? I didn't see it in the theater, but I saw it on video when it came out. And what was your initial thoughts about it? Um... 
I think it didn't really stick to it didn't really stick to me. I remembered enjoying I think the only thing that I really remembered was Val Kilmer's Brando impression. <laughs> Which he's done in more than one movie. <laughs> so that's clearly like a thing he's proud of doing. Because that funny tying it back in in Coppola's Twixt. He does a Brando impersonation in that movie. So at some point in the movie, he does that. So there's like there's something about uh, Coppola and in this movie and the Brando and you know just kind of mixing together. And it is funny when watching the movie, you do get some heavy kind of apocalypse now vibes, like this guy Very going into so. the jungle. Marlon Brando is like living in the amongst these like this tribe of people, like acting like a god. Like it's the same damn. Uh, ending basically and then it gets out of hand and it's all about sort of like reverting back and whatever and it's like I feel H.G. Wells maybe had something there but Joseph Conrad ripped, ripped off his movie if you put Brando in both movie versions and put them next to each other there is a lot of similarities in a way um <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just some of the scenes with the in the rainy jungle mm -hmm. yeah definitely felt like uh <laughs> like uh like apocalypse now uh yeah and so i feel like the two the two big things to talk about with this movie is kilmer and brando so maybe we should talk about around them first because i feel like that's sort of like what for me why this movie's so exciting. <laughs> um, but let's talk about maybe a Thulis and a Feruza Balk and some of the other you know, the, the, the other stuff. Um, I I really love Feruza Balk. And I, re I really love her intro in this movie where she's dancing to some deep forest and she's kind of more like kind of is portrayed as almost like very like new agey in a way or something. Like she doesn't look like the other animal people, you know. And, right. And uh, Thulis is instantly smitten <laughs> with this sort of because it because it because it's Feruza Bulk, it has she has this kind of gothy thing going on, even on an island <laughs> made by a scientist like this was made, I want to say the same year or right after the craft. So she was already sort of like the goth crush for, for many people. Um, <laughs> and uh She's, she, I think she's pretty good in this movie, though it does feel like there could have been more. And I bet if Stanley had made it, there'd be more of her character. They kind of like, she kind of vanishes, you know, <laughs> throughout the movie. And then they, uh, spoiler alert, kill her off. And then it just sort of feels like no consequence, which is odd. But yeah, when, in that scene, I had to go back and watch that scene because I was like, wait, did they just kill her? And yeah, it really... No, no. And Thulis doesn't seem to care, even though before that it seems like he's in love with her. And there's this whole thing of like he wants to save her because she's sort of de-evolving into this panther woman. And Thulis's DNA was like what Brando was going to use to like save her. And then it just didn't work out. And so that's sort of weird that that like his, his character doesn't really react <laughs> upset at all <laughs> to her being killed and like i think it's a, it's a weird killing because you know, they do it in like silhouette like they hang her yeah and it's brutal but they don't really show it and they don't linger on it long enough to have it really like i agree or i would have the same reaction where i had to rewind it and be like wait did she just die like that's weird how it kind of happened off screen and then they just kind of keep going with the with the blood <laughs> the blood <laughs> and 
Um, do you have any thoughts on Feruza Balk in this movie or in general in life? Uh, do you like the craft? Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I I, th- I think she's I think she's she's a cool actress. She's I, I really I think maybe my favorite thing she's in is Almost Famous. Oh yeah, she's really good in that. Yeah, I think she's um, I, she. I think she might be one of my favorite characters in that film. Yeah, no, definitely that movie's so good. I. I was a fan of hers since I was a kid when I watched Return of uh, Return to Oz and really loved it. And then, of course, she's in The Water Boy with Adam Sandler, <laughs> and and I really like her little part in Bad Lieutenant Portocol, New Orleans. What is she doing? Uh, that? Also, with Val Kilmer in that movie, uh, she's like the um, I think she's a cop also, and there's a, she kind of is not his girlfriend, but she like hooks up with Nicolas Cage at one point. And she's in it very briefly, but it's just worth noting because Val Kilmer is also in that movie. Um, and that was kind of the last time I saw her. And that was, what, 12 years ago? Like, more than? So, I don't know what she's been up to. She's definitely my favorite character in the Lost Soul documentary. She just seems really cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, about the making of it, she seemed like she was the most, like, behind Stanley, like I said, but also just, like... The most kind of honest in the documentary interview is just not giving a fuck what people think about her opinions of what happened. Yeah. Um, which is how you should be. <laughs> She's old enough now that she doesn't care if she pisses off New Line. Uh, oh, worth noting, too, we kind of talked about how not great New Line was last season on our last episode when we talked about uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 5. Um, yeah. 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 <laughs> and you, four. You've worked for yeah. And four. So they make, you know, good movies, but it seems like maybe there's some, uh, or there were some problems there with their, uh, the way they did, did stuff. <laughs> I think it's, I, I, I really, I, as we were saying, I, I think it's more of just the nature of Hollywood uh, of like where they'll just take advantage as much as they can. And I think New Line probably justified they're being like when you're trying to break into the big boys club and you see all the big boys playing dirty you're like okay well we got to play as dirty as them and in some ways we got to be willing to play dirtier so i mean it doesn't justify treating people shitty but yeah i don't think it's unique to new line oh no yeah i mean i'm sure if they made a documentary about like most movies made at a certain point, like you'd get these stories from like everybody. Um, <laughs> Hollywood is a dirty town. It's a dirty place. <laughs> hey, that's where uh, I am right now. <laughs> Does it look out the window? Is it dirty? It's very beautiful. <laughs> okay, never mind. Um, <laughs> and so, the I feel like the weak the weak link in this movie is Thulis, strangely, because he is the lead. But at the same time, you can't really fault him because of who he's playing against. Like if you're throwing this guy who's, you know, hasn't been in a lot of things against Val Kilmer and Brando, both like working on 11, you're going to kind of be pushed in the background. Not so much that I wouldn't include him in a documentary about the movie, but uh, I feel like he, like I, I think what he did was he probably intentionally like acted, played it down, you know, because his character is very much like the witness to the things going on. And oftentimes always that character is sort of more just like quietly looking at things. A lot of them like looking with 
amazement or worry at uh, the goings on. And like, I forgot he was in this movie. Like I know who he is now, but like when I was trying to think about this movie again, I couldn't remember who that actor was. That was the lead. I was like, who is, who was that? And I was like, Oh, David Thewlis. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's good. He's not bad. It's just everyone else is working at such another level. It's like when you see like, what, what's another example of that? Like, where you'd see a movie where everybody's just like so like so so good that even the good people in it are like just sort of pale to like because because you can't you can't compete with the other two actors in this movie you're not gonna i don't know if you're gonna uh, i'm speaking to the listeners i don't know if you're gonna like this but i'd say kurt russell in tombstone oh okay because i feel like everybody like he Everybody else in that is is doing is is doing giving a more interesting performance, <laughs> and it's not to say he's bad in the movie. He's totally good in it. Yeah, and that's what, and that's like, why but, I think it's but, true because I think David Thewlis <laughs> is good in this. Yeah, it's just that he has to be the anchor. <laughs> I and, think maybe yeah. you you need that, or else it's just too much. And I can't, uh, though, like, then again, that's Mad Dog time, and that movie's great. So, yeah, like, that movie's everybody. There's no anchor. I guess you could say Goldblum, but no, he's uh, just as weird in that movie too. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Tombstone again. Val, Val Kilmer. Maybe it's just if you're in a movie with Val Kilmer, you're just gonna pale in comparison <laughs> to, to, to Kilmer, uh, unless you're Graham Greene, uh, who can he's the, yes. he can rise above, you know. He was he was on the same playing field. Um, that was a shout back to our <laughs> season one episode about Thunderheart. Well, and also um, Kilmer in Thunderheart isn't playing. Uh, he's the boring. He's actually kind of playing the boring role <laughs> at the center of it. The, the yeah, boring that, lead, and he's not boring. He's very he's very good, and he does a great performance in it. But yeah, I think that a, a lot of the other people in that. He, like he's playing more the David Thewlis role. Uh, true, yeah. Compared to yeah, uh, Trudell and Graham Greene, all these people who are really like giving like really strong things going on from them in that movie. Um, but we did that movie already. Back to this movie. <laughs> so, uh, did you ever see like when this movie came out? Did you know David Thewlis was? Had you seen Naked, the Mike Lee movie? Chicky monkey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Ever that's I mean in for actors at that time when date when that film came out, people were just nuts for this guy. It was such a tour de force. I mean, as good as everything he's done since then, I still think that's probably his best film because it's just such a a blast of creativity. It's sort of like a like Richard E. Grant in With Nail and I, hmm. like this. English actor who we've never heard of just tearing up a film and tearing through it. <laughs> and have you seen Naked? I've never seen Naked, nor have I seen With Nail and I, but I've heard oh. about both. Well, a lot. you should see both films because good golly, Miss Molly, they are. <laughs> yeah, those are some great performances. Yeah. And I mean, I love David Thewlis now, but he plays a much sort of creepier, older guy. <laughs> <laughs> and to see that sort of peak young Thewlis as a <laughs> drunken English fuck up in a Mike Lee film. Pro- again, also maybe my favorite, one of my favorite, definitely one of my favorite Mike Lee films. 
Um, I love Mike Lee. I should watch yeah. it. I, I, it's on the list for for sure. Um. <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of. I mean, I guess I was kind of excited. Something about like I I wasn't excited about this film when it came out, even though it had all these people. Really but, not with Brando. Like I mean, like, I feel like like Brando just being in anything was exciting always well, because it was not happening a lot. It you know. was well, yes, it was enough for me to it was enough for me to rent it, but not go to the movie theater. <laughs> no, so, uh, yeah, um, <laughs> so Thulis. So let's let's talk about the two the two leads. How do we? Would I, you have I, rather? Would, would you think it would have been better with Rob Morrow? I. It would have been different. I think. Like I think, if it had if they had well if it was James Woods. Right? Wasn't he going to be the the lead, or was he going to be the James Montgomery Woods character? James Woods was going to be the Montgomery character. That's right. So it was originally going to be Val Kilmer as the lead, and that would have not been as good. Wait, no, no, and, no. Oh yes, yes. And, Val Kilmer and, was going to be the Rob Morrow, David. And Thieles he character. was, and then Val Kilmer was like wanted the more interesting role, and so they gave him Montgomery no, no. instead. He didn't want the more interesting role. He wanted to work less time on the film. <laughs> oh yeah. Said, you need to cut forty five percent of this character out. <laughs> you know, I, you don't have to agree to do a movie you don't want to do. <laughs> you don't have to do that. But uh, so that I, th- I feel like Rob Morrow. So that would have been this would have been right after Quiz Show, which is great, and he's great in it. And uh, I've actually never seen Northern Exposure, despite growing up in Washington where they filmed it. Um, I've been to Rosalyn, never seen the show. Um, That's good. Uh, but I feel he would have definitely been a more sympathetic character. And I feel like I don't see him try. He wouldn't have co- competed with Kilmer Brando in terms of like kind of going over the top. But I think he would have maybe been a little more grounded for for me thulis there's some there's a weird kind of detachment with with thulis in me in this movie like when i watch it i don't quite i'm like it's like i don't like i'm not watching the movie being like oh i hope he gets away i hope he figures it out i'm just kind of watching be like okay he's you know he's he's a part of this insanity he's witnessing this craziness happen but i think moro i would be more caught up in while hoping that he gets out okay and things work out for him and there's just something more sympathetic about a rob moro over uh, david thulis in my mind, if it was the thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we certainly got more David Thewlis, so it would have been nice to get, you know, we don't have, there aren't a lot of Rob Morrow movies. No, not, it's weird. He just kind of went, because he's on TV still, he was on that show Numbers, is that yeah, right? Yeah, and he was on, he's uh, he's a regular on Billions. Yeah, it just didn't quite uh, connect I guess he just maybe just didn't connect with people in a movie way, which is weird how some people can and some people can't. I don't know. But I thought, I mean, Quiz Show's fucking awesome and he's great in that. (laughs) It's like, uh, you know, the scene, you know, the time when he was a guest star on the Ben Stiller show and (laughs) Ben's all, you know, jealous because Rob Morrow has this amazing career. I wonder how he feels. I wonder how they, how they, those meetings go when they meet up now. (laughs) I know. What would something about Mary have been like if it was Rob Morrow? <laughs> so just to give you some idea, so that appearance on the Ben Stiller show was in 92. Yeah. Then Northern Exposure was in 93. Then Quiz Show was 94. Oh, no, yeah. no. Northern Exposure was 90 to 95. Yeah. And I'm trying to see when. So that's so, 
So then Quiz Show was 95, I think. It was like right after he left Northern Exposure, made this big kind of Oscar Actually, ni- movie. Actually, 94. 94, like yeah. sort of like the end of the season, end of the run of Northern Exposure. And then, it, yeah, this would have, Island of Dr. Moreau would have been next. Yeah. Um, and after that, just to give you like some idea of the films that he did instead of that, he did Last Dance. Ever heard of it? Nope. <laughs> he did. He was in Mother, a small role in Mother with Albert Brooks. Um, don't remember. I love that film. I don't remember him in it. Yeah, I The agree. Day Lincoln Was Shot, TV movie, TV movie, into my... It seems like he probably should have stuck with Island of Dr. Moreau. I'm just, yeah, I, I don't know, though. I mean, like... The movie is wasn't well received. It like it didn't boost David Thewlis's career in Hollywood. I think he went back to England and, you know, did. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Well, uh, but the thing is but, that when you look at the films that at the things that Rob Morrow did after, there's it's not like there's anything that's as interesting as Island of Doctor Moreau. Certainly nothing with a cast like that. I guess ever. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. And then around that time was Ben Stiller just rising up and up and doing yeah. and getting more famous. So like in the end, he became the more like who would have thought when you watched the Ben Stiller show that he'd be the more famous one. Yeah. Uh, I Those did. jokes don't. <laughs> I think if people watch that show now and they and I think they're not going to get those jokes. The, yeah, the jokes of just him being jealous of everybody's success. And it's like, yeah. but you were the biggest actor in Hollywood for like eight years straight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm confused. Um, okay. So, uh, let's talk about before again, before we get into like the big exciting stuff. I uh, The special effects in this movie are great, but also sometimes they're not great. <laughs> I feel like the makeup is incredible. And you have actors like uh, Ron Perlman and uh, Tamura Morrison, like in these in this great Mark DeCascos, in this amazing animal makeup. But then there's like this awful kind of mid '90s CGI sprinkled in there that kind of takes you out of it for a bit. Like when the when the one is running and it's a kind of like blurry looking, it doesn't look good. And there's like little some little things running around like on a boat or something like that. That's the, the, yeah, that's the sort of stuff that hasn't aged well um, at all. But, <laughs> but the, 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 the thing that looks to most amazing to me is the, the little tiny guy that hangs out with Marlon Brando, his, his makeup. And I remember when I first saw this movie, that was the thing that really blew my mind. Cause I was like, how did they make this? Like who, like, is this a Nelson puppet? De La Rosa? Nelson name. De La Rosa and it's it was like it's an actual like this is not this just a little person this isn't this is like a little little person like this is a tiny tiny and next to Marlon Brando looks even tinier and it's just kind of amazing looking like the makeup on him and it really does look like a little creature he's moving two around feet four inches that's so insane uh and in the documentary, they talk about how he was not really going to be in the movie that much, but Brando was just so like mesmerized by this guy. That he was like, nope, he's going to be with me in every single scene. So good for you, Brando, boosting this actor up to being one of the leads in the movie. Doesn't of course, lines, doing so but... meant uh, booting somebody else out of, of <laughs> the sidekick role. 
who had yeah, been unfortunately yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of a bummer you know what that that's showbiz <laughs> it's uh but uh but like all the scenes of them like where he has the tiny little piano on top of the big piano and like clearly the inspiration for mini me in in uh in the austin powers uh movies and just how they wear the same clothes and it just adds another odd element to the film uh which was brando's idea uh to have this guy be there and be dressed the same and it's just it's a, a strange strange thing like this is this is a weird movie it really and i think it is because of brando and kilmer and the things that they brought to it um yeah in the absence of the pure vision of richard stanley you have the are the anarchic uh (laughs) visions of brando and kilmer and frankenheimer trying to just get what he can successfully get like i wonder what it's like to be a director where the actors are like we're not going to listen to you. We're going to just do whatever the fuck we want until it's done. Like, how, like, do you just sit back eventually and stop fighting with them? Being like, fine, do what you want to do, Brando, and then we'll then we'll fix it in editing. I just feel like that's kind of like clearly Stanley couldn't handle it, but Frankenheimer sat through it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but what's crazy to me though is like by this point in 1996. You already know that Brando and Kilmore are going to do this. Like this is what they've done in every movie they've ever made. They come with their crazy ideas, and like you got, like I think you got to know that that's what you're going to be working with. Like that's the collaboration. Like it's like hearing about the directors that don't like working with Nicolas Cage because he shows up with all these wild ideas, and they're like, no, no, just follow the script. And it's like, well, then why did you hire Nicolas Cage? Like, and I get the Frankenheimer kind of was brought on board to kind of fix this movie that was already like this, the ship was sinking and he had to like, was hired just to like, this wasn't his vision, but I feel like knowing that he wanted to work with Marlon Brando was the main reason why he signed up for it. And so you're working with Brando. This is what you should be open to is his crazy ideas. Like the, you know, Missouri breaks, which we covered in season one, has the same stories of like him just coming up with these wild ideas and a lot of people being thrown off by it or not into it. But that was like 30 years before this. <laughs> so like, I don't understand the people just being like, why well, I can't believe Brando and Kilmer are doing this. Oh, of course they are. This is how they work as actors. Yeah. 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 Like we talked about in the last episode with Spartan that like, don't get on Vil Kilmer's case for like being in character the whole time. That's how he acts. That's a way of acting. Uh, not every actor does it, but some do. And when you hire them, that's what you're getting. You know, like that's the way he does his trade, his talent. You know, like it's uh, it's just it's silly to me when people are just like, I don't understand. I can't believe that Brando's taking the script and adding all these things. It's like, well, that's what he does. He's more than just a guy you hire to do the lines. Right. Like these are like heavy method actors. Like like Marlon Brando is like the method actor. So like right? Yeah. <laughs> Just I'm confused by the stories constantly for every movie he's ever made of like, I can't believe he went wild with these things. It's like, well, yeah, that's what he that's what he's known for. It's funny because, you know, uh like one of the things they talk about in the documentary is one of Brando's ideas is that he wants to have a a a pot on his head with ice in it 
because it's <laughs> to cool his head. And I had watched I watched the movie before I watched the documentary, and I just thought that was one of the ideas that I thought this is great. I love this. <laughs> and it's, it's such crazy an interesting looking, idea. I would wear that. It is. And then it was his idea to show up painted all white and wearing mm-hmm. sort of this like mesh outfit. And it just looks insane, but it's like, it's very striking. Like, it's very memorable. Like, that is better than just him showing up as a doctor. Like, it's just like, he, he is, I mean, it's, you know, old news, but like, he really is a true artist. He's not just an actor. Like, he's, there's something, he is just on another level, you know? The, and like, and Kilmer, I feel, is kind of doing, also, he's, Kilmer's also on another level. And, um... I love that Vel Kilmer's outfit is very parrot head Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> like he's got this, like the kind of the little puka shell necklace or the little hip necklace and the Hawaiian shirt. And, uh, and again, reminds me a bit of Dennis Hopper and apocalypse now. And he's just <laughs> Kilmer, like as difficult as it seemed like he was, according to people, it seems like he's kind of having a good time with his performance here. He seems like he's having fun. Like he's really yeah. going crazy in a, in a fun way. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I, <laughs> as I said, that was the that was the part that I that was the thing I remembered most from uh, from the film when it came out. And at the time, I wasn't as in I'm, I wasn't as much of a Val Kilmer fan. I thought he was fine, but I wasn't like he he hadn't done as as many of the things. Maybe I hadn't seen Tombstone yet. I think that was one that I saw on video as well. Um, and so it kind of surprised me. Like I was watching it to see Brando, and it was Kilmer's performance that jumped out. I was like, "Oh, this is this is he's doing stuff that's funny and and weird, and I love it." And like, I'm sure he just started doing that Brando voice, and they were like, "I guess this is what we're doing." And Kilmer, like. We talked about this too in Spartan last week. It's like he does bring a great humor to like everything he does. And I feel like the strength of, of a movie and like this movie is the ones that go with that. And like he is so funny. There's like there's something really dry about the way he delivers stuff like which totally works in like uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And but like, yeah, even in Tombstone and stuff, he's just like he's just there's something there's something mischievous about all the Val Kilmer performances. Like there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a playfulness there uh, as serious as he sounds as an actor and as serious as he is as an actor to be as good as he is. Like he does seem to like not be shy to be playful and kind of crazy when he's actually performing. Yeah. And it sounds like that might be like part of that is a willingness to be outrageous and cruel on the yeah. set and that that is like I don't I don't necessarily want to work with that if I'm an actor <laughs> right if I'm on the set with it but at the same time if I'm making a movie uh, I mean it's the acting thing like part of being an actor is being able to inhabit these spaces emotional or interactional that you know, normal, polite people don't do in a working situation. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, again, I don't think it's necessary to be a, be cruel. But at the same time, I didn't become Val Kilmer. 
you know, and <laughs> and it sounds like Brando did the same thing. Like a lot of a lot of the biggest and best people seem like they have the capacity to be very fucked up and weird for reasons that the person they're doing it to has no clue about. And I don't want to say it's like, like there's a, there's a, there's a line of like where that is still, even though it seems unprofessional, that it's still a professional way of working. And then there's a place, there's a line it can cross where it just goes into pure abuse. And you know, that, that can't be accommodated, but yeah, I think there's something about that. What you call that humor is that it comes from a, a very essential arrogance or confidence maybe arrogance is the wrong word because arrogance is a isn't based in having the goods but it there's just something there's a there's a quality of arrogance to the way he plays his roles that makes them interesting but probably also makes them <laughs> difficult to work with and I, and I wonder though like the characters he plays does a lot of them tend to have this arrogance and is it like is that what he's bringing or is that already written there and they're like you know who'd be good as this arrogant character Val Kilmer like there's an arrogance to his character in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and certainly here and it's like is that just heightened because of him or is that already like really written into the character I, like it's it'd be interesting to look at the scripts to see like or like but the thing is though like if this character was going to be originally James Woods, that also would have been an arrogant character, right. you know? <laughs> so, and he also would have probably been difficult to work with in his way. You know, like, I feel like if you're going to get a person that can maybe play these kind of characters and make it believable, maybe there's something to that person's personality. There's the reason why you thought of them in the first place to like play that. Like Rob Morrow wouldn't have been able to play the Montgomery character. Right. You know, it wouldn't have worked because he does. There's just not there's not something that you see him where you see that kind of arrogance or that kind of character. Although um, that is kind of the, he did play a a good kind of arrogance in quiz show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so have you have you on a movie set ever worked with a method actor? Like, have you ever gone method where you stayed in character the whole time? And have you ever uh, done the Kilmer thing? Uh. I try and do it stealth, but I like my thing is because I'm not a famous act. I'm not a famous actor. I show up on set and most people don't know me. And so whatever I'm cast as, I, I allow people to treat me like that. And then them treating me like that makes it easier for me to be like that. So if I'm playing, you know, I've played a nerd. I've played a like a bullying. I played a bully. I've played sort of a the, the sexy guy. I played the bad dude. And whatever you're like, whenever my experience is, whenever whatever you're playing, the people on the set are going to treat you like that again, unless you're Val Kilmer or Brando, and people are going to treat you like Val Kilmer or Brando. But so for me, I I I am doing I don't know method. But I, but I try and do it stealth. And again, maybe that's, I think that's probably a weakness. It, it's a sign of, of being a good person because I don't want to make people uncomfortable <laughs> and have my way of acting dominate other people's experience. But 
that's also the difference. Like a star doesn't give a shit about that. A star is like, no, no, my process is what's going to be. It's going to define this film. Is 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 method acting hand in hand with being difficult? Do you think like not at all? I, I think, but I think like like pre method, like people that like acted in the 30s and 40s or even before movies, just in theater. There was definitely a lot of assholes then too. They were all difficult to work with and deal with, and they're not going method. They're like doing their like the way, the older way of acting, you know, whatever you want to call that. What what is what is the pre method? Just called pre method, like like where you just remember your lines, classical acting, classical acting. Basically, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, in those days, people would get, you know, it was all about how you looked, and it was it was still these power games. I won't come out of my trailer before she comes out of her trailer, kind of stuff. Um, So there were, you know, there were power plays, there was ego. I think the difference is that with the method, and I think it's what is is so interesting and alluring about it, is that it isn't about how do I look or how do I come off the best? It's like what what is going to get me to the most essential, purest performance? And instead of crafting you know like the old style was i'm going to learn my speech and i'm going to learn all of the ways that i say <laughs> it and i will deliver <laughs> it like this you know that and the method is like throws all that out and says just just like sort of like brando purely i don't want to know the i'm not going to read the script i'm going to come in i'm not even going to read like i'm going to have someone read me the lines through my ear, th- through my my assistant's going to read me my lines through my earpiece, and I'm just going to be in the moment and get to the truest, uh, the truest expression of this moment and this character. And like Brando is like because he is the method actor, he can take it to that extreme. Um, yeah, I I would love to try that sometime. Uh, I think it would be really interesting, but there are, you know, just, I mean, the method is really just about digging into your own personal experience to try and bring that to the role. And of course, when you're digging into your own personal experience, it gets very self-referential and actors are very insecure and (laughs) ego driven, can be very insecure and ego driven people. And so I can see why a lot of times it doesn't go well, but for the people who really understand it and bring real skill and thought and awareness, like an awareness to it. uh, Yeah. I don't think, I certainly don't think that being, that doing method is, the same as being just being an asshole. But I do (laughs) think that just writing off people who are method actors as all being, you know, stupid, that that is an asshole opinion. Yeah, I agree. I think it just, it doesn't help that you always hear like the stories, like the behind the scenes stories, like the ones that like, like of the people working with the method actor and them not getting along. Like, you know, you hear about like, James Dean and Rock Hudson bumping heads on Giant because he didn't understand the method acting of James yeah, Dean. You know, or, uh, I think I or, think James or, Dean it, came out okay in that one. I think he came out. Yeah, I mean his perform his performance is incredible. Or like anyone with Brando, like Jack Nicholson being confused by Brando and Misery Breaks, or um, 
there was someone that uh, I knew someone who had uh, worked on the master or knew someone who worked on the master. And uh, I guess, you know, Walking Phoenix, very method. Philip Seymour Hoffman, very not method. And just constant, like this Philip Seymour Hoffman being just like so fed up and like annoyed with uh, Walking Phoenix, just like being super method and just like, to the point of like, being like, okay, I'm done for the day. You can keep filming this guy being method, but I'm, I did my lines. I'm, it's over. And so I think like a lot of people just can't butt heads with people like that. But again, it is weird if you know you're working with someone who's method. I feel you gotta have to go with it and know that that's gonna be happening. I don't know. Like I, I agree that there is definitely a line that could be crossed of like you don't want to like, you know, get into like there's there's some stuff that maybe is taking it too far. Um, but I, I don't know. I just feel like, especially with directors, it's just like, you're going to be method, then be method with these guys, like these, these ladies. I, yeah. It's a, it's a way of doing it. Has there been a new way of acting post-method? Has anyone thought of new? <laughs> well, like, I, I mean, there's, yeah, there are a lot. There's, yeah, there are, are many branches from the method. So there yeah. was Meisner and the yeah. repetition technique, and that really that that came in in the in the sixties and seventies, and that led to the you know the Pacinos and uh, was Hackman a part of that? I don't know. What uh, what what do you mean by repetition technique? I don't really know anything about. Uh, so there was a ra- acting teacher named Sanford Meisner who developed an acting uh, theory, practice, that is all about trying to be as in the moment as possible. And the foundational practice is a repetition technique where it would just be two actors on stage. It would be you and me. And I would say, I would notice something about you. Like, you're wearing a green shirt. You'd be like, I'm wearing a green shirt. Like, you're wearing a green shirt. You know, I'm basically you go back and forth saying that until something changes. Like, then it might go like you say, "Okay, I'm wearing a green shirt." Oh, you're annoyed. I'm annoyed. Yeah, you're annoyed. I am annoyed. <laughs> and you and it's basically. I mean, uh, De Niro in Taxi Driver. Is the scene again? The scene with the you're talking to me scene is basically him doing the Meisner exercise with himself. You talking okay. to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. You talking to me? Oh, you talking to me? That's that's a to- that's him doing a an like a reference to that. And hmm. the whole goal of this is that actors who are trained this way learn the dialogue without any, like, just learn it rote and then allow the scene and whatever is happening in the scene to, and whatever's happening with your your scene partner to bring out the performance as opposed to going into the performance with the idea that, like, with a method was like, this is going to be all about the day that my mother died or with the pre-method I have worked out, I know my speech or I know what, how I'm going to do what I do. And with Meisner is like, you don't know what you're going to do or how you're going to do it. 
you learn your lines and you go in and then you allow the day, the moment, the your partner to affect you so that a performance comes out of you. Huh. Okay. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, guys like Nicolas Cage, they have their own Do- whole other theory about sh- <laughs> like that's more shamanic, which I yeah. – <laughs> I actually find that's I I find that to be the most interesting, yeah, uh, uh, way. And I feel like that's just more the mystic actor in me. That's the belief that like if you get cast in something, then you belong there. And from a sort of a synchronistic standpoint, that ritual of the performance is going to keep playing for the rest of your life and affecting you for the rest of your life. So. You have to approach it like a shaman, which with hmm. really good boundaries and, you know, a sense of the magical import of your acting. Um, yeah. Particularly on I think that's particularly on film more yeah. than more than on stage. It's a, it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, because on stage, when you're acting, you have to be there acting in order for it to happen. Whereas when you're acting on film, once you're done, it just lives there forever and is out yeah. in the world creating causes or, you know, affecting people. And energetically, I feel like that affects the person who people are focused on that way. So, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Thank you for that little lesson. I, I know very little about acting techniques. Uh, the few times I've been in a movie, I just I just do the lines and <laughs> try to figure out a voice and get, get out of there. <laughs> um, <laughs> You'd be a very popular actor to work with. No one would get mad at you. <laughs> well, and also I'm also I would be I'm too polite to be method. I would never be able to. I would feel so bad putting anyone through any sort of difficulty. I'm too like aware of self aware of like I don't want to upset anybody. So I would not. Which is also why I'm not famous. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> don't have it in me. It's just not part of my character. I'm you know. So, you know, we're we're about we're we're well into this. We haven't really discussed the film. We've been just talking about the people. Are yeah. I, I don't know if we need to do a, a full rundown of this film, but are there any specifics, aspects, scenes, things that you wanted to discuss about it? I, I don't know. It's hard because to me what makes the movie the movie is the performances. To me like the fact that Frankenheimer came on just sort of as a guy for hire to finish a job makes it like in terms of directing by him a lesser film for in Frankenheimer's filmography like let's talk about Frankenheimer for a second actually because he is a director that I really love and he has made I think some of the best movies of all time um this is certainly not one of them though I do love this movie but like you're talking you know like the Manchurian Candidate is a is a true masterpiece totally. like that movie is incredible one of the best movies ever made uh so good and like just he's just a very like seconds is a very very unique great movie like i love seconds and like uh i'm a big fan of uh some of his 80s stuff like 52 pickup i really love uh dead bang 
uh the later stuff like ronin is really good going back to mammoth uh, ronin is great so like what are, what are some of your favorite frankenheimers or your thoughts on frankenheimer well i mean i love the manchurian candidate um yeah i really like the train with Burt mm, i've Lancaster. never seen that and i think that's another one where he inherited it hmm. I'm trying to look it up but i think i i don't remember who it was because in the documentary uh, the Lost Soul documentary, there's a part where Frank, they, there's someone saying that Frankenheimer says, oh, I've, d- I've done this before. I've come on to films at the last <laughs> minute before. Um, and I think that was one. So, yeah, I really like that. I really like, yes, I really like Ronan. Yeah, that movie's great. Um, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at his, wow, he did Prophecy. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that is crazy. That's a wild movie. <laughs> that that is that is a movie that's hard to explain to people what what it's like to watch Prophecy because it's like it's sort of a horror. It's like an environmentalist horror film. That movie's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, I, he's he did all fall down an early Warren Beatty film from '62, which is I think one of the better early Warren Beatty before he started to assert himself as a producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, Seven Days in May. I think that's probably my favorite. It's about I've never seen that one. It's with Burt Lancaster and Kirk Douglas, and it's about like Burt Lancaster is a general who's trying to pull off a coup of the United States. And yeah, I think that's my favorite. Although, I mean, no, I mean, Manchurian Candidate is such a overwhelming masterpiece. Uh, there's uh, yeah. a, there's a scene. There's a I don't know. There's a scene uh, in that where the scene where they're brainwashing the Lawrence ha- Harvey character, and the way that's shot. If you go back and watch that scene, it's so amazing because they're they're having to like it's it's just going around this one continuous shot, and if you remember what it is, at the guy Lawrence Harvey is sitting in a room and there's a bunch of ladies drinking tea, mm-hmm. and then it's revealed that those ladies drinking tea are the other people who are, are the people who are brainwashing him. Mm-hmm. Some sort of uh, dangerous Asian type people, Manchurian type people, I guess. Um, and the way it's shot in all one continuous thing, they had to have been, as soon as they went away, they had to be pulling stuff and putting people back in. It's just such an amazing bit of direction cinematography not really cinematography direction to create an effect that is so haunting and also all in the camera uh it's yeah just so fantastic so um how's black sunday i've never seen that but i've always wanted to but i just never it never got around because it looks silly but i like all the people in it (laughs) yeah it's good um (laughs) It's like it's very much of that era, you know, a big, you know, a big 70s uh, action thriller disaster film. 
you know, you got Robert Shaw. Yeah. You know, Bruce Dern, who I'm starting to realize that I just I have a thing about Bruce Dern where I can't. I don't I don't want I'm not against Bruce Dern, but I I realize that whenever he's in a movie, it makes the movie ickier to me. <laughs> oh, I like Bruce Dern. It's not it's not like I'm saying it's not <laughs> like I think about like I mean that's what's great about him. He's, he's just he's he's an icky guy. Uh but how like so just like the way he looks or just the way he acts both. or like Yeah. I, I guess I feel that way oftentimes when Willem Dafoe shows up in something, I get like a creepy vibe, even though he seems like a perfectly nice guy. But just the way he acts and looks, I just get like when he's like when he's or like Michael Ironside did that to me, too. It's like you're supposed to be a friendly dad, but this doesn't feel right. Is this dad going to murder somebody? Because it's Michael Ironside. <laughs> There's something about you. Icky feeling. Interesting. OK. Yeah. Um, like. You know, King of Marvin Gardens, Coming Home. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, Dead Bang was it was it was a Frank and I movie I watched recently that I loved. Have you ever seen that? That's um, no Don Johnson versus White Supremacy. It's mm. uh, Bob Balaban is in it, <laughs> and it's a crazy movie. And a lot of it kind of there's parts that sort of feel a little Shane Black-like. Like, the script is kind of... It's funny. It's violent, but it's funny, and it's really clever. And I... I Don Johnson, this is, this is like right at, like right when Miami Vice ended, and it's totally enjoyable. It has an, one of the most amazing foot chase sequences I've ever seen in a movie ever. Uh, and it has a very believable end to the foot chase sequence. It's really, really good, and it's a movie I'd never heard of before. Uh can't recommend that one enough and yeah, um, the, the cover is really uh, bad it is and yeah ronan is great ronan written by david mamet that's sort of like we did spartan last week but ronan is maybe that's the beginning of him doing these sort of action thriller because <laughs> he wrote the script it has it feels very mamety amazing car chase scene like that ronan is so good do you um, think that mamet thought he was going to get to direct that I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I wonder if he wrote it and like, I don't really know the behind the scenes of Ronan and that movie's too liked for us to ever cover it on here. But like, I could see that being something like I write Ronan and now I can finally direct my kind of version of an action movie. And they're like, no, you're David Mamet. And then it took him like, you know, 10 years to get to the place of actually doing that. Um and that's the Ronan is the movie Frankenheimer made right after Dr. Moreau. So Dr. Moreau, they talk about in the Lost Soul documentary that Frankenheimer was kind of like washed up by this point and was sort of like, I don't know, that didn't mean much. And he wasn't making movies that people cared about or that made money. And so the, him being brought in to do this was sort of him like trying to prove that he can like helm a movie. And despite the chaos on the set, I mean, he did finish the, the movies finished. It got finished. And then Ronan is sort of back to a more like like this movie. It's weird. Like if you if I didn't know John Frankenheimer directed it, I don't know if I would tell you that he did. But there are certain shots in here that very much feel like a Frankenheimer thing. Like not throughout the whole thing, but like there are certain like shots that have that kind of like deep focus that like is in Manchurian Candidate, where like the things in the foreground and the background are all in focus and. 
and like it's like the way the fra- certain framing shots feel a little like very like the way Frankenhammer does it. Like Frankenhammer is one of those directors that came from TV. Like he was like kind of did like he was like the guy to TV in the fifties and then direct in the sixties. So he's sort of in that in that world of directors like Richard Donner and uh, Sidney Lumet and Arthur Penn and like that group. And so he didn't really write any of his movies. And he's just kind of like, I think those kind of directors tend to get taken not as seriously or they don't like, just because they're not like writing and directing. So like he can definitely be looked at as a director for hire for some, a lot of his movies. But the fact that there are a lot of them are consistently good. And there is a through line of just sort of like, how he frames things is is there like it's not quite there in this but it is but it is there for some of it like there's sprinklings of frankenheimer did you did you can you tell like would you have been able to this is a john frankenheimer movie uh no no i would just <laughs> i i i mean to me it's just yeah it's it feels more like a val kilmer marlon brando movie yeah 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 and for sure like a warmed over coppola <laughs> yeah and i mean and it's no fault of frank and Amherst because he was literally hired while they were already making the movies it wasn't yeah. like richard stanley coming in with the vision and with the storyboards he really just showed up and was like what's the movie what are we doing today let's go like maybe there was a few days of like you know catch up and then you just gotta go go with it um so yeah. I'm I'm looking at his IMDb. There's a film from 1974 called 99 and 44 100% <laughs> Dead. Yeah, with Richard Harris. With yeah. Richard Harris and Chuck Connors. Uh, <laughs> Uncle Frank Kelly calls on Harry Crown to help him in a gang war. The war becomes personal when Harry's new girlfriend is kidnapped by Uncle Frank's enemy, Big Eddie. <laughs> uh, have you seen this? Uh, I have. It's. It's. Uh, I don't know if it's a great movie, but it's definitely worth your time. Okay. Um. So. Um. So before we move on to our friends, the Razzie Awards, is there any other stuff you want to talk about with this with this film? I've kind of. I feel like I've gone through what I have to say about it. Um. Do you like this movie? Like, are you in? Like, I watch it and I'm just getting such joy from seeing Brando and Kilmer, and that's good enough for me that I can look past any of its other flaws. But how about you? I, I didn't dislike the movie. <laughs> I, I'm glad that we. I went. I'm glad I got a chance to go back. I'm and I watched it twice because the first time I was like, meh. And then I watched it again, and I, I found there's definite there's definite stuff to love, but having watched the documentary Lost Soul, it sort of justified my feeling like this. I I kind of have a sadness about the whole hmm. about the whole thing, and I feel that and that like I like seeing Brando, but it's not. Uh, I feel like Brando in Don Juan DeMarco is. Even though he's not doing as much, he's more interesting. Um, yeah. And same thing with Val Kilmer. Like, I like, I, I really dig Val Kilmer's performance in this. 
but it's mostly things that he's doing that is that are extra textual, you know, yeah. that I could get. I, I could just watch those clips and get that out of it. I actually what I what I really got out of it that I uh, on multiple watches was my relating to more of the monster characters. I feel like they <laughs> jump out a little bit more. The complexity of those relationships jumps yeah. out a little bit more on multiple watches. Um, but no, I wouldn't say that I that I love this film. Um, I like it a lot more now that we've watched it and we've talked about it. And I never, like if someone had asked me before we did this, have you seen The Do- Island of Dr. Moreau and did you like it? I would have said, yeah, yeah. It's definitely worth watching. Um, so uh, I'm glad that you are super excited about it. And um, <laughs> I'm glad I got to uh, I'm glad I got to go down the rabbit hole of it and you know hear this very sad Hollywood tale about Richard Stanley in this film. <laughs> so the Razzies. Oh, no. Uh, the our mortal enemies. Uh, if we if our podcast had an enemy. It's only them, I feel. <laughs> maybe maybe sometimes Aaron Sorkin for you, but I think that we we constantly butt heads against the Razzies because they do the opposite of what we try to do. We try to build up movies that people don't like or people think are bad. And the Razzies want to just tear it all down and burn it to the ground with with, with immense ridicule and disdain and I hate them, <laughs> but, <laughs> but so, and here, here's some more uh, fodder for, for my hate. So 1997 Razzies, because uh, this was, uh, 96 was when it came out. This movie was nominated for Worst Director for John Frankenheimer. Uh, he didn't win. He lost to Andrew Bergman for Striptease. Uh, John Landis and Stephen Frears also nominated for Worst Director that year. What were the, Stephen? what was the Stephen Frears? Stephen Frears is Mary Riley. John Landis was The Stupids. Okay. Um, The Stupids, a great movie, by the way. Not bad at all. But I think it's just unfair to kind of put John Frankenheimer here for worst director because, like, he was dropped in the middle of this movie. Like, it's not his fault if any problems happened with this film. Like, he literally was hired to do a job after the movie had already begun production for months. And... So I feel like that just seems extra mean <laughs> to nominate it for worst director as if any of it was his fault at all. I felt like he really was like the manager of the pizza parlor where the pizza parlors is unruly and going out of business and the original manager quits or is fired and he's brought in just to make sure the place doesn't burn down and they can keep selling pizzas for two more weeks before it closes. You can say he's the worst manager ever. Maybe he just was kind of doing a job and this is the best he can do. Um, so that's a pile of crap. Um, it was nominated for worst picture, did not win, lost to striptease. Also nominated was The Stupids, Barbed Wire, which I think is a great movie. Have you ever seen Barbed Wire? No. Uh, the, it's the, um, Pamela Anderson movie. It's a remake or redo of Casablanca. It's amazing. (laughs) It's really good. Let's do that film. Did you ever think that Casablanca would have, you know, like crazy Nazi sci-fi elements and you know, giant prosthetic, you know, breasts or whatever? It's or it fake boobs. It's a uh, barbed wire is great, and it's got Steve Railsback's in it. It's a really good movie, 
uh, unnecessarily hated. Yeah, let's do barbed wire. <laughs> For sure. Uh, uh, and then you have... Uh, this was up for worst screenplay. Richard Stanley nominated for worst screenplay. That's fucking mean. That's shit. This they didn't poor use guy, his screenplay. Yeah, I mean he's credited on it, but like really, like after like and they like these are movie people who do the Razzies. They were definitely aware of the behind the scenes of this film. You're gonna like this guy like had his dream fall apart, had his dreams crushed, and then you have the nerve to like make fun of him, and be like, you wrote the worst screenplay. Fuck you, <laughs> Razzie Awards. Seriously, what a load of crap. Um, worst screen couple, Marlon Brando and that darn dwarf is how they word it. Fuck uh, you. <laughs> uh, don't think he's a dwarf. And also he has a name. <laughs> His yeah. name is Delson Della Rosa. So you hateful pieces of shit. <laughs> go, go, go die. Uh, and then... <laughs> Uh, winner of worst supporting actor Marlon Brando for Island of Dr. Moreau uh, nominated against Val Kilmer for this movie and Burt Reynolds for Striptease Steven Seagal for Executive Fuck, Decision Burt Reynolds is fucking brilliant in Striptease he's the best part of that in the movie he's the best thing in the movie yeah he, like, hands down like when he's walking around with the Vaseline in his boots like, <laughs> he is so funny in that movie <laughs> And uh, Quentin Tarantino from, from Dust Till Dawn, uh, which I also disagree with. I think that's his best performance as an actor, and he's totally good in that movie. I mean, Steven Seagal... And also, you know, Executive Decision is also bullshit because Steven Seagal's in that movie for, like, 10 minutes. Like, are you really gonna... <laughs> like, like, sure. Like, throw him under the bus, I guess. But, like, how could you watch this movie and think that Kilmer and Brando are terrible? They're so good. It's just, they are why this movie is worth anything to me. <laughs> like, like it's like if Stanley can't make his movie and like it's either don't make the movie or have Marlon Brando and Phil Kilmer just take your movie to whatever crazy direction. So, like, that's just crap. Um, and uh, was, that, was that it for nominees for this? Oh, here's one unrelated to this movie, but one that makes no sense to me. Worst written film nominee... A Time to Kill and Mission Impossible. Aren't those movies considered good? What? Yeah. What, wait, what are they nominated for? Worst written film grossing over $100 million is Time to Kill was nominated and Mission Impossible. Like, it lost to Twister. But, like, A Time to Kill Twister is, like, a is real also movie. a great film. It's also great. <laughs> And what? Mission Impossible is like good. That, that makes no sense to me. I don't understand this category at all. Like, it, huh? It, uh, like, I don't uh, get. Like, what are they even trying to say with this? I don't like. I don't. I've never heard anyone say that A Time to Kill was a poorly written movie ever. And even with its plot holes, I never heard anyone say that Mission Impossible was a terrible script. Like that's it, that's just odd. Like where they choose to punch, I don't really get. I just don't really understand the Razzies at all. It's just, it's all very, um, and just, you know, just to add to their fun misogyny, uh, worst screen couple is also Pamela Anderson's breasts was nominated. <laughs> screen couple. So the douchebags that are the Razzie awards sadly hasn't changed. They still just seem like total scumbags. 
Um, <laughs> and, and you know, I I hope someday I make a movie that gets a Razzie Award because it means that I'm a good my movie's good. Yeah. So <laughs> so sorry to end this episode on a sour note, but I think it's always interesting just to see how totally wrong they are and just this non this nonsense. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, like there are movies that I could I think that are bad. Though I would never give them an award or point a finger at them, but like just like the fact yeah, that you're picking like you could you yeah, did, I guess <laughs> you would do it to Mank. Yeah, I guess yeah. But and I feel they should only give it to movies that are like morally broken <laughs> or something like that. But I don't know some of those movies I enjoy too, like Bad Boys too. But I I don't know I just like a time to I've never seen a Time to Kill, but isn't that like a movie that people liked that was good? Yeah, I mean I don't it's, understand. It's another it's. It's Did a Grisham novel with McConaughey and Samuel L. Jackson. Come on, like and you know I'm my not, take on you. There are no, there are no bad films made based upon Grisham novels. That's my well, not according to the, <laughs> the Razzies. Or wait, I, or they're all bad. It's one or the other. Either none of them are bad, or they're all bad because the DNA <laughs> of them is the same. Yeah. Uh, very, yeah, very weird. Uh, I do not, um, yeah, I don't get their thing at all. Um, oh, another person, I, uh, go back, sorry. They also gave Worst Supporting Actress nominee to Faye Dunaway for The Chamber. So they're really not into John Grisham that year. <laughs> so, right, because isn't The Chamber also a John Grisham thing? Yeah. Yeah, so they there you go. Um, good job. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> so I I've been very happy to go down this little hopscotch of uh, mammoth to Kilmer. Yeah, just like to kind of do this nice little three in a row that we that we that we've done. Um, and and worth noting, we we noted this last week with Kilmer, but this is so this is now the fourth Kilmer movie we've done. And this is the third Brando movie we've done after Missouri Breaks and Don Juan DeMarco. So clearly these people... And so wait, the Kilmer, we've done Spartan, we've done Thunderheart, we've done this. I thought there was one more, was there not? No, I guess... So I guess it's just three for Kilmer, sorry. But three at three for Brando. Right on. So that means that we they're on the right path of the movie. Like, it's good that they keep showing up in movies that the world is wrong about. That's... Uh, I, I, and I don't think it'll be the last we'll see of either of them uh, on this show. Have you, did you ever see Val Kilmer's John C. Holmes film? No. I did uh, not. I, uh, I, I tried watching it, and I think I turned off in the first five minutes just because it made me so nervous. <laughs> it's not a happy ending. <laughs> but I, am, I still feel like that's something like – like he's the perfect guy to play John Holmes yeah so anyway uh hmm well uh radio eight ball andras here when i'm not co-hosting the world is wrong podcast i'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. 
We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Eight notes, scale an octave. Master the scale and you master the score. So, what's going on with the director's wall these days? <laughs> well, we're definitely far, far away from Brando. The Godfather episode was a long time ago. But we're pretty close to our Kilmer episode for the movie, um, what's it called? Uh, the last one. I forget what it's called. Twixt, what's, what's the not... late? Twix. That's it. Twixt. I knew it was candy bar adjacent. Uh, we are very close to Twix. We are a mere, I want to say, two two months away from covering that one. But we're currently doing this weird thing in October where we're covering uh, movies that Coppola edited between The Rainmaker and Youth Without Youth. He made these kind of strange sort of like, I don't even know if he's credited, where he just took a movie that someone like kind of was didn't finish or didn't work out in the studio, said Coppola, re-edit and make it a better movie, and got paid for it. Maybe buy some more uh, winery estate, or maybe this is what paid for his last three kind of more indie films. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting thing to open up and see what it is all about. I, I got a question for you. So yeah. here you are, like John Frankenheimer or Richard Stanley... Uh, between Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer, how does it feel? <laughs> uh, it's good. They're not bossing me around as much as I've heard they would. Like They kind of just leaving me alone. Well, you haven't like, got I to kinda... Kilmer yet. You don't know what it's going to be like <laughs> when know. you get there. But he's not preemptively trying to tell me how to do this episode. So I'm in a good spot. I feel like we're going to work with each other with the greatest of respect of me watching a movie that he is very good in and me saying that he's good in it much like how he didn't interfere in this episode or the last uh, but brando he couldn't stop calling us <laughs> actually you don't know you 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 haven't been on twitter but it's the uh you don't don't look but the kilmer crowd has come for us they're, they're not oh, no they're not happy <laughs> I don't believe you. I don't know why. I don't know. I think that they heard me say something off, say it, it, dismissive <laughs> only by comparison in in relation to uh, Maverick. Uh, okay. Not not the great Maverick film with uh, with James Garner and Mel Gibson and Jodie Foster. Maverick, but uh, Top Gun Maverick. And they heard me, you know, I compared it to, I said that it was less fascistic then Spartan, and they went nuts. Anyway, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that's 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 what's going on with the director's wall, huh? Yep, 
Yep. So what's going on with Radio 8 Ball? Not a lot currently. Wow. But... You don't even like for I first of all I had to really set you up for that uh to to share the spotlight and then you you just crapped on it before I even was able to say anything. <laughs> yes, Radio 8 Ball. Radio 8 first of all, Radio 8 Ball can't be on hiatus. Synchronicity never stops. We are currently not producing new episodes, but because of the Radio 8 Ball app and because of the, the sort of whole nature of podcasting is that these things remain evergreen, the synchronicity continues to flow. And there's so much I recorded over the years of Radio 8 Ball that it's really just a mercy to the audience that I have stopped clogging up the production, uh, sort of filling, continuing to, to fill up the to-do lists of the fans of Radio 8 Ball. There are currently a finite number of episodes to check out, somewhere in the area of 670, and uh, plus the, all the thousands of songs that are in the Radio 8 Ball app, which you can download from the iTunes App Store for free. And we don't collect any of your information. It's just an opportunity for you to ask it questions. It'll pick songs at random from our 20-year history, you can listen to those songs, share them with friends, just enjoy the synchronicity of it. And uh, I was recently, I'll say I was recently talking about it on an episode of a podcast that I wanted to give a shout out to. Uh, it's called The Lone Traveler's Guide to the Divine, and it's hosted by my friend Amanda Lux. And she has a history with Radio 8 Ball that made it, uh, that uh, allowed us to have a really, really great and unique conversation that I'm rarely able to have with interviewers about the show. And I'll put that in the show notes and you can check it out. Excellent. So, Brian, have you ever been involved in a situation where the control of a film or when like a lead actor like some, worked on some project where there had to, where there was a big production shakeup? Um, no, I think I've been really lucky. I've been lucky that to work on things where that hasn't happened. Like there, I'm trying to think if there was ever, I've not been on many sets. I've only been on maybe four of them. And it's, what's nice is the actors are always the nicest people on the, on the whole set. I feel like I've never experienced, uh, somebody's ego kind of taking over, or like bullying the director or anything like that. Like, uh, I'm just trying to think of like, yeah, improv wise, like even on my movie, like improv was encouraged and everybody's ideas were encouraged. So it wasn't like I, I was even close minded to whatever insane ideas anyone had. So I think it just, it's a matter of like how you approach the movie initially and let people know kind of what they're allowed to do or not allowed to do. Um, I've heard stories of sets where that's happened, but uh, thankfully I've not had firsthand experience. How about you? Have oh, you ever yeah. taken over a project? <laughs> no. Have no. you been a Val Kilmer? I have never. Uh, I did find myself once in a situation where I I was involved in a production where the production got really out of hand to the point where there was a genuinely hostile relationship between oh, the wow. production and myself. And hmm. 
like they weren't paying us. Like it was so low budget and we were off in the middle of the desert and staying at a casino and the producer has, uh, I'm not going to say the name of the film because I'm going to say, because the producer who's a friend, but was going through a really dark time drinking heavily and would be, we'd, we'd find that producer down in the casino playing with petty cash to try and get the money for the next day's shoot. Yikes. Like, it was, and, and instead of, this is the thing that drives me crazy about almost any projects, but I feel like on film it's the worst where things are fucked up, but instead of admitting that things are fucked up and asking for help, people get really defensive and blamey and mm. sort of secretive. And you know that what's going on is that it's janky. And you're like, well, I need let me know what's going on so that I can plan for it, so that I can take care of myself, make sure like if I want to make sure that I'm fed and you want there's some chance you can't have lunch on the set tomorrow. Just let me know so I can get myself lunch instead yeah. <laughs> of not knowing. And then we're starving on the set in the heat. And you're like, well, I just, I don't know. So it's, it's their fault, but they, would they quit yesterday? So I, what, I, you know, like, <laughs> and the sad part is it, I did allow it to affect my performance. And that was, mm. so that's, I, that's not quite the same. Um, I've never, I don't think I've ever been on a film where they replaced the director. I feel like I've been on a place, a film where they replaced the DP early in the production. And that was kind of weird. I've been involved in lots of different, like other kinds of projects where things took a bad turn in the middle, but it's a little bit different on a set because I think that it, there's a certain amount of um, like we, it's only eight weeks. We can get through it. Like this guy's mm -hmm. impossible, but we can, I can deal with it for eight weeks. Whereas when you're involved in like running an organization or being in a band or something where there is no hard out or even soft out, then mm -hmm. it's a little bit harder. Then you, then you, things come to a head faster in a way, because it's like, I'm not going to put up with this for the rest of my life <laughs> you know? like, or yeah. for the rest of this year or, you know, whatever. Whereas on a set, it's like, uh, okay. No, I guess I can deal with anything for a couple more weeks, you know. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, speaking of a couple more weeks, I hope that you can handle waiting for us because we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode all about one of my, I don't want to say it's one of my favorite films, but I think it might be one of my favorite films. Certainly one of the films I've been wanting to do on this podcast for a very very long time and that is the indian run sorry i keep bumping my head on the mic uh that is the indian runner sean penn's writing and directorial debut based upon the bruce springsteen song highway patrolman i think it's highway patrolman right no it's state trooper no it's highway patrolman on the record <laughs> nebraska there's a song called highway patrolman there's a song called state trooper state trooper is Please don't stop me. Yeah. State Trooper is the one about the State Trooper, and Highway Patrolman is the one about the Highway Patrolman, and that's the one that we're going to be talking about. And and uh, if you have any thoughts about that or about this or about anything, please, please feel free, feel obligated to write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast 
com, and you can find us on all the social not all the social media platforms what am i talking about we eschew so many of the social media platforms but we do give our attention to two of them and we'd like to draw your attention to those platforms one of them is instagram brian you handle the instagram i know it's just a lot of nice pictures everyone's getting along it's a good it's a good vibe going on there pretty groovy people reach yeah. out sometimes you know directors actors yeah. they want to say how happy they are that we covered them you get all those accolades and all those nice, warm, and fuzzy feelings. While I'm in the gutter over at Twitter <laughs> at World is Wrong Pod, just getting into it with the people who hate Woody Allen. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not really that much. But for the most part, it's pretty it's it's pretty it's it's not it's not as wild as I make it sound, but if you'd like to get involved over there, which why would you? I don't know. But if you did, come and find us <laughs> at World is Wrong Pod on Twitter. And, of course, every one of these episodes has a page dedicated to it on the website at www.theworldiswrongpodcast. And uh, I don't know. I still, do you, I still like doing this podcast. How about you? Yeah. We're, yep. season, we're three years in. It's, it's going good. It's There's still good. so many movies to talk about. So many movies to talk about. And, uh, and so much that the world is wrong about. In fact, mm -hmm. I think everybody knows it by now. But wherever we are, you are, you, me, our audiences, wherever we happen to find ourselves, we're going to realize that the world is wrong and it's probably wrong about us. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.